Welcome to Post Status Draft, the official podcast for Post Status, a website with news and information for WordPress professionals. Today, Joe and I discuss how we choose plugins, code libraries, and frameworks for our projects. If you enjoy this podcast, you can get a lot more quality news and analysis from the Post Status Club multiple times per week. Check out our current club members, site partners, and join the club on our website at poststatus.com slash club. You'll be joining around 700 wonderful club members, and you'll never miss important WordPress news again. Today, I'd like to feature one of our partners, WooCommerce. WooCommerce makes the most customizable e-commerce software on the planet, and it's the most popular, too. You can build just about anything with WooCommerce. Try it today by visiting WooCommerce.com, and thanks to the team at WooCommerce for being a PostStatus partner. Now, here's our show. Hey, everybody. I'm Brian, and I'm the editor of PostStatus. And I'm Joe, a co-founder and the CTO of HumanMade. And welcome to the PostStatus Draft podcast. And today we're going to be talking about uh, what we look for in plugins, libraries, and frameworks. Yeah, so initially we were saying, let's talk about how we choose plugins and the qualities of a plugin that we look for and realize that our code comes in a lot more varieties these days. It's true. WordPress.org so. is a uh, not so frequently visited side of mine for the plugins. <laughs> well, I guess that shows a little bit of the, of the bias you may have. So I'll cover. <laughs> it's true. I'll cover the traditional side. I guess um, we'll start with the less technical variety. So uh, plugins versus libraries and frameworks. So our more technical listeners just hold on to us for a little while. Um, there was a um, I don't know if you know uh, Kim Jones from the UK, but he always had mm-hmm. this. Uh, I, I'd say um, was was known for his uh, WordCamp talk called Wow Plugins, which was essentially him <laughs> rolling off his like top twenty plugins every year, and it would come back year and year again at every UK WordCamp, and uh, everybody loved that. So you know, taking a leaf out of his book. I'm gonna have to look this and put it in the show notes. Wow Plugins. <laughs> wow Plugins. Uh, Institution. Well, of Looks like he's done a podcast for it too. Cool. Um, well, I tend to be the type of person who's willing to give a brief look at you know who the author is, the active installs, the general ratings, and sometimes I let that influence me, sometimes not, if it's specific functionality. But I'm willing to toss it up on a some kind of test site or dummy site and see what happens in the terms of the user experience and whatnot. Uh, are you, at least for testing purposes, are you unwilling to do that or do you do that with unknown plugins? Um, I don't remember actually specifically doing that, but I guess when, like what is, is your first point of call, I guess if you want to do something in your WordPress site, um, I don't know, let's say uh, you want to be able to like have a sticky post, but it actually shows like third down in the list instead of the top, <laughs> right? So like your sticky posts always show a third position onwards. Um, that's just some random thing that I just thought of. Uh, like what what is your instinctual thing to do at this point if I say, oh, can you make post status do that? Um, that's a random thing, but literally what I just did was I went to wordpress.org slash plugins <laughs> uh-huh. and I searched sticky posts to see what kind of plugins there are for sticky posts. Okay. And... Um, I think in this scenario, maybe I would... Th- that was pretty specific, but if I was just looking to enhance sticky posts a little bit, mm. um, I might look 
just in the repo of for sticky posts. And it seems like there are a couple of plugins that uh, just make sticky posts better. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> but as, um, as a but the the popular the popular tendency seems to be category sticky posts okay. where you can show sticky posts on category archives. So um, there are a couple of plugins that show, you know, that have thousands of installs for that specific use case. Mm-hmm. There's also a way, a plugin that shows posts inside in the sidebar based on being sticky, things like that. Um, so there could, there could well be one out there that is doing the thing that I'm thinking about. Like I'm, I'm for, for me, my instinct, instinct, to solve that problem isn't to look on the WordPress repository. So that that's probably the different place that we're coming from. But I'm um, I'm probably the worst person to to talk to this because <laughs> yeah, you, I'm very you really enjoy. It. But I'm you kind really of like, enjoy writing your own code. I right, um, um, but I do and know you that chose that, you chose maybe my least favorite feature <laughs> in WordPress, <laughs> and, and made me go find plugins for it. Um, but I'm so kind of thinking from the perspective of you know somebody that doesn't code or something. Um, yeah. Then so you, I, I presume sit- everything that they ever want to do on their site, they kind of look for a plugin for to do that specific thing, and often you're actually going to find that there is yeah yeah forty thousand plugins right exactly. So in your scenario, you're wanting to have sticky posts, but they're kind of available on the homepage, but not in the top spot, so that every time someone visits your site. They don't just instantly see just that post. Yeah, kind of yeah. I want like my three newest posts, then like whatever put I, I put sticky, and then whatever other posts would come after that. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. So I think saying qualifying that scenario is a little specific. I think what I might more look for is like ways to adjust my homepage. So I would use Google to my advantage, I think, in that scenario. And I might end up with some copy pasta to actually do the sticky post scenario. Mm-hmm. Or I might dig into core to figure out, you know, where how sticky posts are filtered in the traditional WP query return in general. Mm-hmm. Um, because that one to me is a little more than what I would expect in a plugin. Um, right. Although it's not a not an awful example of like the type of request you might get from a client that Maybe they've used sticky posts in the past, but they're like, hey, they're just too way up there. And people right, go to my site right. and they That's leave because they think I haven't written anything new. Um, so I, I think it's a valid use case. Um, like, do, do you start with the plugins that you, or like the specific thing that you want to do to your site? Or are you starting with like, oh, this is a cool plugin that just makes sticky posts better in several ways. I'll add that because I kind of want, you know, beefed up sticky posts that might come with a host of different things. I typically look for things that um, are specific to something I want. Mm. I'll use another example of a scenario, mostly because I want to get off your sticky posts. <laughs> this is making you feel dirty talking about sticky posts yeah, so much. Basically, it's a horrible feature. Um, so, I've had one scenario where I wanted to change the post type um, of particular particular posts because I decided to create a uh, custom post type to better fit my needs. And I previously had posts that were that post type. I see. So that's the type of thing I know I can do the conversion. Right, but um, it seems generic enough for that to probably be a plugin that could do that. It, right. So I basically 
Googled something along the lines of post type switcher, mm-hmm. and there was a plugin that was exactly called that post type switcher. Okay. Um, and the next thing for me is okay, who did this, you know, or convert post types or something like that. Mm-hmm. And in that scenario, there were two plugins one that has 10,000 installs by Stephanie Leary. Um, that was updated two years ago, which is great because I knew the, I knew who the author was, but I was a little worried two years ago is kind of on that mm-hmm. limit. And then there was another one that was more recently updated and has 40,000 installs, and that was by uh, JTrip, John James Jacoby. Mm-hmm. And now since I did, did it, it's also got additional authors. So I installed that one called Post Type Switcher. And because of the author and the number of installs and the number of five-star ratings, I put it like right on, uh, I guess, my local site. Didn't really look at the code, just went to see if the interface was what I was anticipating based on the name of the plugin and mm-hmm. stuff. And it was. So I was able to bulk select my posts and change the post type. And I was assuming it was helping me take care of uh, some of the conversion stuff that I was a little worried about that I might run into if I did this with uh, just straight MySQL. Because I was worried, like, Maybe there's some parameters of mm. the post type rules that you know JTrip already took into account that maybe I would not, and I don't want to think about it anymore. So I'm going to let him do it. You, so you kind of you kind of hit the jackpot on that one. Yeah, I but, hit the jackpot <laughs> on there being a plugin specific next, to it, and you knew the author already. Exactly, and my next route might have been going to see if maybe it's a WCLI command mm. um, that I could, or some, or I could maybe. Uh, find someone that had done it with WPCLI, find someone that had done it with MySQL so that I have to do it straight in the database. You know, just kind of go down the list to see ways to handle that functionality. Right. Um, if I would have found the plugin and it's like got 100 installs and I have no idea who wrote it and no ratings, I'd be a lot more worried. So my f- philosophy then is to see, one, go look at the code. So I go to the developers tab on the plugin page and I hit the uh, current version, and I literally go look at just the main PHP file because sometimes you can tell just based on how the c- the code looks on that view from WordPress.org's SVN repo. I'm right. like, uh oh, no, <laughs> you know, like if the indentation is horrible and there's no comments and you know maybe it's not even structured in a class or who knows what. Um, but I mean, yeah, at, a, like a, a, a Migration plugin like this could be, you know, if if you choose a bad one, things could go pretty bad for you. Like I say, accidentally deleted all of the posts or something. Yeah, like so there could be all sorts of unintended consequences. Right. Um, I also might look at who wrote the plugin because it's not like I know every good plugin author. So if it's a plugin author that has, you know, several plugins and maybe one or two other plugins are popular um, or like well rated or whatever or old, um, it could tell me. They're an active developer. They're, you know, paying attention to the stuff that they're doing. Um, in a situation like this, where JTrip J- J-Trip wrote it, Andrew Norcross was on it. It was kind of like, okay, whatever, just install this. Mm, yeah. like, this is this is what I want, and and that worked out. Uh, it's not always so fortunate. So yeah, um, I do appreciate too. Sometimes plugins will link straight to GitHub from the description. And I can go and look on GitHub and see more specifically what the activity's been like on the on the repo. Yeah, that's certainly something I do a lot of, which maybe we'll get on to later. But 
I find GitHub to be a better place to gauge the um, how kind of supported and actively developed a plugin is. Which is funny because I actually like if I can get it off .org because um, actually getting those updates when they occur is simpler. Mm. Um, oh, sure. Maybe you have a maybe you have a library that you use that auto detects new GitHub versions, but I certainly don't. No, I don't. Um, but if I'm looking for something I want to use on a client site, if it's only on GitHub, I'm more likely to fork it completely, assuming that they put it on GitHub but not .org because it was right. useful for that author at one time, but it's not something they're really maintaining. Yeah. Um, so I don't really treat that as like, oh, I'm going to maintain this repo and update it, and y'all should come back and get the updates. Right. I'm not expecting that if I just get it off of GitHub. It's just like a code dump, and it's like you can do what you want with it. Right. So if it's a relatively small plugin, then I might just use whatever someone there wrote as my basis and customize it if I need to, mm-hmm. um, or just drop it into my own naming system. And, you know, maybe I'll never touch it either, but it works right now. Sure. A lot of times, too, that depends on if it's for personal projects or client projects. So how does it differ, differ for you in, the, in using third-party plugins if you're using something personally or for clients? Yeah, I think when it comes to doing stuff personally, I don't really care so much. I'm, I'm pretty easy. Like the, but the JoeHoyle.co.uk doesn't yeah. have high standards. <laughs> no, ex- exactly. <laughs> or uh, you know, internal stuff is is another one where the bar isn't quite the same. Um, take the so the, all of the human made sites. Like uh, we have a multi site which has the both the corporate site and then like all of our um, internal P 2s and also like backup WordPress. Uh, small site and things like that. That's all on one multi-site network, single code base, which is easily the worst quality uh, you know, <laughs> repository we've got because it's just got so much uh, kind of thrown in there. Different plugins that are used on different sites. It's got about 20 sub-modules for different projects. Um, and the the bar is clearly a little lower uh, for us to get something on there. Like, for example, I think we have like three markdown plugins for our internal P2 that are all like provide slightly different functionality, but like clobber on top of each other and you try and edit a post and it's converted to HTML then you can't do markdown anymore. It's like a huge amount of these problems. And that that's kind of, um, so so that just goes to show, I, I think just like, I'm happy to chuck something up there if it fixes some specific problem. Um, and if you break something, you're just breaking it for your own team. Yeah, exactly. Which uh, you know, as as the team gets bigger, it becomes a bit more of a problem. But uh, but generally speaking, it, it's you know you, you don't have to worry quite as much. Um, so like if if it is something that I think is going to be a pain to implement myself, like let's say I don't know, is, is something like a tweeting the latest post that you've published or or something like that, where like you know it's just going to be a pain to do it, and somebody else has already done it, and it's kind of all the same. So let's just use this one and and use that kind of thing. Um, you know one that you know a situation that's a little silly, but it's got uh, surprising legs in terms of the amount of code that's out there for it is um, essentially like a query builder widget or short code type of thing. Um, you know, because there's the built-in widget that is just a list of posts. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's it called? Uh, I haven't been in widgets in ages. Um, recent post. but what's that the, what is the widget called is that what you're saying what yeah what's it called the uh, the, the 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 core widget for list posts or whatever I've no idea. You, you know a lot of people want <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Yeah, this is funny. So this uh, a this, lot of people this, a lot of people this, this want to, to customize the way they show posts in a widget. So they want to include an image or a link out or a custom call to action. I don't know. Okay. Um, so there are plugins that people have built over the years for stuff like that. And I used to use one by Justin Tadlock called Query Posts. That was pretty good. Um, and then I started using. Um, in client, I was willing to use in client projects. Bill Erickson has one that's like a short code for querying posts. Okay. Um, and that I was really happy about because it's called the display posts short code. Um, because it essentially gives you all this flexibility of putting these little random queries on client sites without you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, going and doing it, and it gives people that are a little less technical a lot of flexibility if they want to, you know, have fun with stuff. Um, and that's like such a random little thing, but there's tons of plugins and snippets of code and whatever, kind of all over the place. And Bill's is now actually on .org, but it used to just be a GitHub thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but for that one, I was fine just put it making it a little drop in inside a plugin of within my client site because it was from Bill Erickson. Right. Um, right. Now I'm also fine just making it a, a, a plugin on a client site or something. Um, but there are just so many different options that choosing and figuring out what's right and all that can be really challenging. Um, for y'all, for client sites, how would you go about something like that? Would you be more likely to use something, a tool like this, if someone, you know, if your client wants like a advanced post display shortcode, essentially to mimic WP query within a shortcode? Right. Would you would you go for a plugin, or would you be much more comfortable writing your own? Probably going to be more comfortable writing our own. I think. I mean, it, but it does depend. Like, if if the overlap with what the client wants is like ninety nine percent of what the plugin provides, then that's fine. Um, we're unlikely to use a plugin that only overlaps with like 50% because um, the way I kind of see uh, for a lot of the client work is essentially, you know, there's a code base of X many lines and we're um, supporting it and providing certain levels of guarantees on top of that code base to say that it's going to be secure, it's going to be performant, uh, or, you know, it's going to be maintainable, all these things. So really the more code you add to the mix, the higher the risk is, especially if you haven't written that code yourself. Um, so there are certain things like a form builder or something like, a, I just don't think that it's worth going through the effort of building that yourself. Gravity forms for us is, is used on quite a lot of, uh, sites, um, just because the amount of effort to build that isn't, uh, really tenable, you know, and, um, also the code quality of gravity forms is, you know, it's, it's, uh, could be better, but it's pretty good. Uh, generally speaking. So I think if the um, if if kind of like we're just using somebody else's plugin to take a shortcut that happens to do what we want, but also does loads of other stuff, then no, we're not going to be really interested in using it. Uh, if if on the other hand, it's something like such an arduous task like WPSEO, for example, uh, it's just um, pragmatic, I think, to to go with that. So I'd probably say that those two plugins are kind of one of uh, a couple of the only ones that we do use repeatedly. They're ginormous code bases, and the there there is a, actually quite a lot of risk that goes with running those. You know, WPSEO has security issues all the time. Um, luckily, there are kind of a lot of eyes looking at it as well. But there's 
such a huge amount of code there that is really quite entrenched that it's kind of not all that surprising for one. Um, and and I, I guess I kind of like understand there's uh, uh, in you know, there, there's risk that you're taking on there, but you've got to weigh it up against the other uh, factors about how it's going to build something to specifically have the SEO benefits that you're thinking of, like that, that you specifically want for that client site. So maybe they want... Isn't, isn't there also the advantage though that a big plugin with a lot of installs, even if when it does have security issues, like WordPress, the the knowledge of that usually comes quickly, and then the fixes come quickly. Yeah, I'm a little little skeptical on that. Just um, <laughs> um, based off of uh, you know, when a security issue is discovered, it's not that common that it's just like oh that was just in the last release kind of thing. Um, so more eyes is better. But it's more about, I, I guess what I'm really saying is like having much more functionality than you're actually using is um, you're, you're just like unnecessarily exposing yourself to a larger vector by doing that. Um, so if, if you all you need is OG tags in your content, uh, in, in your page, you know, HTML to show on Facebook, um, is like the 15,000 lines of WPSEO worth that? Uh, exposure really for for that both in terms of uh, you know security performance and uh, maintaining it going forward I think you're speaking on something that's probably the difference between like a really high risk enterprise project and everyone else in the world possibly um, <laughs> because yeah, I, I think agree I think most people are probably, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say rightfully so, trusting enough that the most popular WordPress plugin is going to have enough eyeballs on it that you're at no real greater risk profile than anyone else on WordPress. Um, And that it's an important enough priority both for the broader community and for the team that's running that plugin. And we're talking about Yoast SEO, but we could be talking about Akismet, we could be talking about WooCommerce, pretty much any of the million plus active install WordPress plugins, which there's only a couple of dozen. Right. Um, Pretty much. I mean, you should always weigh the benefits of what you're looking for in that plugin with the, the risk associated with it. But if I was going to trust a plugin, I'd trust one that's got a million installs over my own code. Most of the time, unless would would you trust that, that plugin, which has got, would would you trust WPSEO more then you writing the five lines of code to add OG meta names to your content. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's a difference if all you're trying to do is write five lines of code. Then sure, because you're looking, it's a whole different scenario, you know. Um, and I think WPSEO, for instance, does more than just add the open graph meta tags. Oh yeah, yeah, no, uh, it absolutely does. But I'm saying that it, it depends what functionality you actually need. Uh, yeah, from- sure. I mean, I think you could say the same thing about e-commerce. Like, if you just want to connect to a Stripe button, then mm-hmm. just just connect to a Stripe button to actually collect money. But if you want, you know, full e-commerce capability that has shipping and tax and the million other things that e-commerce plugins tend to do, then you need more than that. Um, so it just depends on what the goal is. But if all you're doing, like, if I'm setting up a website to collect Stripe money so from my buddy's 
that are in my fantasy football league or something, then maybe I'll just use a little stripe button on my website that's hooked up through a simple WordPress plugin. Um, that that's all it does. But if I'm running a e-commerce business through my WordPress website, then I'm going to want more than that, probably. Right. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. So, like, there's obviously there's going to be a cutoff with how much effort is it worth. It's more that I'm advocating for knowing what code is actually running on your site is uh, to me worth quite a lot. Like, I I um, uh, I value that quite highly because when it comes to when you do run into issues, which could be uh, getting hacked, it could be your site going down or whatever. The more you know and understand about your code base, then the quicker you're probably going to get to understanding what that problem is. So the more uh, code you essentially take on from third parties without like really going in depth and understanding all of that code, then the more kind of unknown it becomes when you're like trying to reason about what is wrong with your site for whatever you know problem you might be encountering. Um, so I, I I think that's like the cost benefit analysis that. I'm usually doing is like uh, how how much overhead am I adding by doing this like mentally um, into like me actually understanding how does everything happen on my site like if there is some hidden URL pattern that WPSEO is exposing that allows you to view posts through a different means then I kind of want to know about that and do I want to like trawl through all of that code to to work that out now with WPSEO, like I mentioned earlier, like the the benefits outweigh the the negative size. I think of of taking on all of that. All right, so I mean, I think we kind of understand each other in terms of when we would use a big plugin versus roll our own functionality. Unfortunately, for regular users that aren't developers, it's a lot more difficult. So you kind of end up with a mishmash of plugins that probably do too much. Um, right. Actually, before we jump into libraries and uh, frameworks, I do think it's worth noting one more thing about choosing plugins, and this is more uh, a note to plugin authors. Um, I can forgive some things, but there are... If I install a plugin and the interface and UI on the admin side is just a disaster, um, I might just not use the plugin purely because of that. Uh, because I'm not willing to hand that over to a client or even deal with it on my own website. Um, so when I'm choosing a plugin, one of the things that I certainly consider is the way the plugin shows up in the admin. So like if it's got really obnoxious uh, notifications and banners and stuff all over the place, or if it like hijacks a primary meta box within every post edit screen, but it's a plugin that I use maybe like one in 30 posts. That's going to be pretty mm-hmm. annoying to me. Um, that's my personal little rant. I don't know if that. No, yeah. The, the UI I think is important. Um, I, I think like we've made plugins for our clients in the past where um, we've definitely had to go through a uh, education process, shall we call it of, of uh, like these things that you're wanting to do are not going to be respected. Um, yeah. In, so even in, if in a, the ecosystem, so even if a plugin technically meets the criteria that I want, I may still not really use it or choose not to use it because it, uh, more visually it doesn't meet the criteria. Right. Um, yeah, so anyway. Uh, on that same note, there have been plugins that they are pretty opinionated about the visual display on the front end too, and I can't use them because they don't make that flexible to like not output on the front end and kind of allow me to 
pull the the data that, from the plugin itself. Yeah, and do that's it. a really difficult thing, I think, for a plugin author. For if if you want to cater to people that aren't coding their own theme or something, so then you've got to deal with the visual stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I've I've had a um, you know when I started doing WordPress development, release some plugins, which yeah, I think like almost a portfolio plugin or something, and, and just trying to like get design stuff into every theme out there is just, it's such a difficult task that I really um really feel for plugin developers that are having to support uh I guess like theme integration where you know people aren't implementing the function calls directly to make it show how they want it to. Uh it's not a fun thing to have to do. So yeah. Um before we hop into to libraries and frameworks, let's take a minute and say thanks to our partner today, and it's convenient timing because it's actually WooCommerce. Speaking of mm. big plugins, um, so if people don't know, WooCommerce is an e-commerce software with uh, well over a million active installs. It's the biggest e-commerce software in the WordPress ecosystem these days. It powers like thirty percent of all e-commerce websites on Earth, um, and they recently went through a really big rebranding. Not WooCommerce itself, but it had always been a subset of WooThemes. Um, and now, about a year after they were acquired by Automatic, they have done away with the WooThemes branding. So it's no more WooThemes.com slash WooCommerce. It's just WooCommerce.com. Um, and yeah, so WooCommerce is what I use to power post status. It can handle kind of the broadest swath of e-commerce topics. So you can do t-shirt sales or you can do subscription products like like mine or you can do uh, wholesale inventory with thousands of products you can do all sorts of things with woocommerce uh, i've certainly enjoyed using it i've built a couple dozen woocommerce sites over the years for clients um, and it's always getting better as more uh, websites and bigger higher at scale websites are using it so yeah good plugin good company that's uh that's WooCommerce. So thank you to the WooCommerce percent of all online stores. That is crazy. Thirty seven percent now? That's what it says on there. Yeah, they're they're certainly hitting the long tail of e commerce installs. Um lots lots and lots of people using it. Um oh, but, but even if you do of the top million websites, the percentage goes down, but it's still really high. Right. So I uh, think it's actually um, I'm looking at the built with stats that it actually links to, so I'm a bit confused because it says we've added WooCommerce powers over five percent of all online stores. I think that might be thirty-seven percent of all stores built on a common platform, on a platform maybe. Um, so I've looked at these numbers a good bit. Let me see. Uh, so I think, uh, okay, so this is cart functionality. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so if you, if you go to e-commerce and then you go to the entire internet, then WooCommerce, mine actually shows 39% and 21% of the top million websites. Oh, I was looking at top 10K. That's why. Oh, yeah. So it's 9%. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Which would explain it. Like WooCommerce is definitely, um, you know, I guess, online shops generally. Yeah, it's interesting because um, pretty common um, knowledge that Magento and Shopify are probably its two biggest competitors. 
Mm. And Magento and Shopify gain a lot more exposure when you get into like the top 100,000, top 10,000 e-commerce right, sites. Right. So like if you get to the top 10,000, for instance, um, Magento is probably the biggest because between Magento yeah. and Magento Enterprise, it's 20%. And Shopify and WooCommerce both have 9%. But Magento is drastically less popular if you get to like the top million sites. Right. Um, it's 30, 39%. That's amazing. That's crazy. Yeah, 39% of all. So like... It like WordPress, you know, it kind of captures that long tail and then inches its way towards the uh, mm. towards the the top end of websites. So right. that's where WooCommerce is is growing now. So yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Um, and so let's let's shift from choosing plugins from a .org standpoint to like libraries and frameworks. So including including stuff in our projects. Um, I guess it kind of depends on what level you're talking about because if you're, you know, sometimes you say like, okay, well, if I'm going to use React, then I'm also using like 30 other dependencies yeah. that everybody always uses. Um, is there a better example of something that's kind of like a one-off library? Um, yeah, like a good one is, I guess, if you're developing a plugin, well, this is one I run to a lot. If you're like making a plugin to intro of a service, quite often you'll just want like the SDK library that goes with that service. So I don't know, you're going to uh, do something with a Twitter API uh, rather than writing your own code to like directly talk to their REST API. And there's probably a PHP library out there for interacting with Twitter. Um, so, I mean, I know in the case of Twitter, there is many. Um, so sometimes the, like the service could have their own library, in which case it's kind of officially supported and that's okay, you know, tip or typically that's good because they're putting uh, time and money behind that. But quite often that's not the case. There's just a bunch of third-party libraries and you've got to work out which ones, you know, you're going to use. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess when it, when it comes to WordPress and plugins for a WordPress, uh, you've got the PHP version thing to worry about, which is um, a quite can be quite a big blocker. Um, I'm thinking like we have, um, so one plugin we have is backup WordPress, which backs up your WordPress site. And one extension that, to that is to send it to Amazon S3 or, um, DreamHost Dream Objects. Um, mm. and the kind of de facto library for doing that is the AWS SDK. The latest version of the AWS SDK requires PHP 5.6 to run. Um, so you're, going to like struggle trying to get that um you know into the wordpress ecosystem five six i don't know where that's running exactly but i i can't imagine it's like that far above 50 percent of websites are on five six plus um that could be way wrong on that uh and the same i think we have with dropbox there's a certain limitation there i think it's five four or something to use the dropbox uh sdk so like Choosing libraries in WordPress plugins that you're distributing, I think, can be tricky because of the version requirements there. Mm -hmm. um, so the next thing I'm probably looking at after that is just how supported the libraries are, whether they have the specific functionality that I need, things like that. Man, I just found something that's like a great example to call myself out on the same front. <laughs> so when you're including a solo library like that, you made me think of one that I use, which is a MailChimp PHP wrapper. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the version I use, apparently MailChimp now has V3 of their API, and I'm using a V2 wrapper of their API. 
that is version 1.1.1 and the most up-to-date version is 2.2. Right. Uh, so all it is is a simple curl wrapper for mm-hmm. the MailChimp library that then allows me to have like really simple one-off functions to interact with MailChimp. Um, but this is obviously one of the things that can happen, especially in client work, but also on your own projects where you include a, a little library like that, but then you don't have a great system for maintaining it. Um, yeah. What do you do in scenarios like this? Do you make a, uh, do you pull it like with a, a sub repo type of thing? Um, yeah, we don't really have a great system. Like we're not really in the composer band camp, which is, uh, I got really... sub repo. <laughs> I don't know where my, where uh, my or it's, it's, it's a sub module. You could use sub module is what um, I was thinking of. Yeah. So like there, there isn't, there's, it's, it's kind of like, that's what Compose is meant to be solving, right? It's using libraries in your project and then it's easy to update them and you can, you know, say that you're okay using version 2.x so then you can just roll an update and it'll bring in the latest 2.0 branch or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think that for um, WordPress development, like Compose is kind of there, like some people are using it, but not enough. Like uh, I'm not really a fan of it, frankly, um, for, you know, uh, reasons that I probably won't get into. Um, Rarsh is going to kill us if he <laughs> listens to this. <laughs> yeah, but th- there is merit in taking that approach. I guess that's like one common solution for that. Um, but but it com- it comes with the same problems. I guess you know when like like plugins that you're taking somebody else's code and that's code that you've got to then essentially provide guarantees on top of. But it, I mean, it's not necessarily the fact that you know if you wrote your own code, it would be any better. So it's a general problem, um, I, I guess. But you're kind of like always presuming it's the per- the person who wrote the library's responsibility to make that that it's you know secure and updated and those kind of things. Um, whereas I think if it's code that you've written yourself, then you typically have a bit more ownership ownership over it to kind of accept responsibility that you need to be, you know. You need to be aware when there is a security issue disclosed that, um, you know, I need to go check my code that I've written to see if I'm affected by that. Um, you're not necessarily going to look at all the frameworks that you're using to the same degree. Uh, so you definitely, you need to pick ones that are supported because of that um, and, you know, have kind of like active active development because unfortunately um, code that is written 10 years ago could have many pitfalls that are now apparent with performance and security that that just weren't when it was written so um, how often do you see this in projects that you adopt from clients where all their stuff is super out of date that's pretty common yeah um but i'd I'd say like we're not taking on a huge amount of code typically but like whenever we do then we have kind of a required step of us doing a full review of everything that they have Um, and if that includes a plugin which has a framework in it then that'll be reviewed as well um so we we're typically learning you know when a client project comes on that is has an existing code base like we're uh, making sure that we understand all of the code that is running there because again like once we take it on we're kind of accepting responsibility for that code base and you know when you make modifications on it if you make a modification and the site goes down two days later the client probably thinks that it's your fault, even if they had a you know code base which was really ropey. Um, so just taking the more, uh, I guess, um, 
uh, taking all of the responsibility is a good thing, I think, in in that regard. And that just kind of like forces you to vet as much as you can. Um, But this is, you know, I don't know. It's it's, it's a difficult problem. There's millions of lines of code out there and there's always new things that are popping up that uh, are exploits that um, people didn't think of before. And now you have to take those into account. The... Uh, there, there was just a really quite widespread issue called uh, HTD Poxy, which basically allowed, um, like, opened up this pretty bad security issue where um, most sites running PHP um, were susceptible to, like, using your site and specifying a proxy. So you could, like, look at all the traffic that was happening internally in that site. So this really popular library called Guzzle, which the AWS SDK, for example, uses, um, had and had the issue in it right that, that is impacted by this um they obviously patched it straight away i think even before it was publicized then they patched it because it's such a popular library but how many thousands and thousands of sites are still running with old versions of that that are still uh open to this issue and most people aren't ever going to think about that when it comes to um you know them taking on code base or whatever this little security issue is hiding in there, but nobody knows it's there apart from all the people that are really interested in it and now writing bot scripts to like run across every website uh, on the internet. Um, so it's just like, it It can be, um, there, there's, I don't think there's an easy fix for it, but I guess it's just being worth being wary that like uh, you're inheriting risk when you take on code. So it's worth vetting it as much as you can uh, when, when you do that. Well, you've officially terrified me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess. Okay, so let's take the scenario of you've adopted a project for a client, okay? And you're now in charge of a retainer and you're maintaining this client. What do you think is the responsible tenure for updating the stuff that doesn't auto update you know that's not you don't just get all these updates for free and get the this maintenance of libraries for free as the client provider and the retainer provider how often are you do you think you need to be paying attention to that type of thing yeah like it it isn't always just like you need to update and then you'll be good but usually what i would i'd usually go to the point of like finding what third-party code there is and just checking the updates that are available to see if there are any security issues in the subsequent updates. So, so do y'all have a list essentially that's uh, a, 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 you know everything you use across your client projects or per client or something like that, so that when you do regular maintenance, you check versions and everything. We we don't have that yet, though. It, it's funny you mention it because we are just kind of discussing that. Um, but yeah, at, at the moment, it's really just a manual process of like, I don't know, let's say it's got an outdated plugin. Um, if I know that it's like, or if I check um, and it's, you know, a well-known plugin, which, uh, you know, I just look at the versions and I can see three, three versions later, it fixed uh, an SQL injection um, problem. Then, you know, that's something that I know needs to go updated and you can recommend that. And that'll be kind of like, we usually have a list of things that are going to be like, required for the client to do before we'll actually take it on and we can you know do that work for them um but there there's like as as part of that code review process there'll be a bunch of um things that come out of it there's like these need fixing straight away um Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what we'll do probably before we even start on any modifications 
Um, but yeah, it's kind of like a uh, fairly manual process, unfortunately, of checking all of that stuff. Um, which what about what about tools um, when you're choosing what to use that are a little less security related and are more workflow related? So I have one in mind that I ran into with a client project one time that drove me nuts, um, which was number one, they were using or the all the CSS had been compiled with an outdated version of SAS mm-hmm. and it was using really complex uh, functionality from SAS so that even some of the functions themselves were deprecated and whatnot. Right. So I had to be using on my local install an outdated version of SAS or I had to update all their overly complicated functions that they were using to work properly with an updated version of SAS. Um, so when you're thinking of more of stylistically, like how do you balance, okay, we're going to use SAS instead of less, or we're going to use, um, or we're going to yeah. use, we limit the, uh, cleverness that we're, we're using in this lot li- with this library because we want it to be more future proof. Like, do y'all think about that type of stuff and yeah, how do you and think it's about it? Definitely for that stuff that like, you can kind of like like the outdate using outdated version of SAS is a good one. Or or like let's say you take on a project that uses less, but we wrote most stuff with SAS. It's like uh sure we could we could like carry on writing in less forever. Uh it's technically possible. There's not gonna be any like performance hit and all of this. Um so it it, it can be tricky like uh I, I guess like wanting to get that project in line with how you're doing all of your other projects. Like it's using this plugin, but we usually use this one. It'd be nicer if that was consistent across the board. Um, so we're not like incredibly bullish with clients about like, you've got to, you've got to switch to SAS because that's what we do, um, or, or anything like that. Um, but I'd say like, broadly speaking, the longer we're going on with that client, the more we're rotating things to fit with, uh, the standard tool set that we have. Um, so even if it's something as simple as grunt and gulp, like generally speaking, we're using one of those. Um, and it would be nicer if all projects were only using one. So, um, just like as part of the development of stuff we're doing, I'm okay if we take an extra half an hour or an hour to convert that over, um, because it's going to make us more productive in the long run anyway. So I don't think, you know, we're, we're not shortchanging the client or anything there. Um, so it, it's kind of like that, that's a little more of a subtle process of like, uh, having to slowly churn the project until we can kind of get it in a shape that we're, you know, is most consistent for us. Um, and typically the client isn't that exposed to that when it's those kind of like framework or tool set level things. I'm not really that interested in kind of explaining to a client why why they should use SAS rather than less. Um, if we're the ones now responsible for the site, then I'm just kind of happy to transparently make that change without, you know, needing to do a huge, you know, billing and everything for that. Have you had situations where outdated tools that you inherited affected the ability for y'all to deliver on your own, like, promises? Um, I guess, theoretically, it's the type of thing you catch ahead of time and then can budget for, but that's not always the case. Yeah, that... It hasn't happened in any time that 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 I, that I know about, but we definitely do catch some things ahead of time, like you say. And I think because the kind of like the space that we're in, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I, I guess like I feel like with our clients, we have quite a lot of leeway to make recommendations and things. Like we're not in the 
client is dictating everything kind of um, uh, segment of the market, I guess, which I, mm-hmm. when, when I compared to like when I was freelancing, I was really just like, you know, uh, like for want of a better word, like just doing what the client said. Um, and I, I feel like if, if you're don't have like, um, unrecognized as a very good position of, or of, 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 uh, recognized as a good authority, uh, to be able to like recommend things, uh, proactively like that, rather than allowing it to kind of get to the stage where you're like, well, I told you this would happen, but you said you want to go anyway. <laughs> and it did, um, then, then things are going to go a lot smoother. And I know that really depends on the um, scale of the project that you're doing in the budget and all of those kind of things. So it's not easy for everybody to do. Um, but I, 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 we're, we're fairly consciously targeting the people and the clients that we, that we have. So we are in that position of, of being able to like make those recommendations ahead of time and as being kind of respected for that, uh, view and kind of given the leeway to do it. It, when you find stuff, is it a difficult pitch to the client for why it's more expensive um, because of their legacy, you know, tools and frameworks and code that they have in the in the project. Not, not really. No, I think if you're just kind of honest about it, about saying, you know, in the long run, this is going to take us longer because all of your code is, you know, really badly formatted, and frankly, we just need to sort it out. Otherwise, every fix that we make is going to break three other things. Um, I think if you can kind of frame it in ways that the client's going to understand, you know, if you just tell them that. PHP 5.5 is better than 5.3, and that's just the way that it is. They're going to be kind of confused why they need to pay a load of money to to do something. Um, so you need to bring it back to, you know, real-world relatable things. Um, but, you know, again, with, like, a lot of our clients, they're used to quite a different way of business, I guess. We have a big enterprise, and they're moving to another system. They're used to much worse case of, you know, the new proprietary CMS coming in and being incredibly dictatorial with how they say that things are going to change and how they're going to need to be, um, that I, I think we have a, uh, quite, a um, quite, quite a bit of room there anyway to play in uh, before they're kind of getting uh, itchy about anything. And I guess we should finish with, um, I guess, choosing libraries or dealing with libraries that are dictated to us in terms of technologies that we don't know as well. Um, So you mentioned SDK and I was talking about MailChimp. These are where we're picking the library. We have the liberty to choose the library because, you know, we need it for something that we're doing. What about if we're, if it's just kind of part of the package, you know, so like some node thing that we're including includes like all these other node (laughs) things. And then you, uh, what was that one that was like a twelve-line package that had a security bug and affected left, some left massive? Path, I think. <laughs> or, yeah, or there's one that got deleted from npm. And... <laughs> yeah, that. Like, what, what about those situations? Like, how do you kind of navigate those waters of uh, knowing this is a smart risk or this is a little too much risk? Or and ha- yeah. you know, how do you how do you figure stuff like that? Yeah, that's definitely difficult. I think that's where. Um, I probably have the most difficulty is when when you have an IT team on the other side of the aisle, so to speak, and they're just saying this is just a requirement and there's nothing you can change about that. Um, that can be frustrating because you know that you're going to have to deal with the the kind of problems that you foresee there, but you've got to kind of get on with it anyway. This probably happens to us with more hosting situations rather than frameworks. I don't really know of many frameworks that, that have been 
enforced on us. Um, but just having to work in like, you know, uh, certain work, having to work with certain technologies because they're using some I, old I, legacy yeah. system or something. <laughs> right, right. There, there's a good one. So we've got a client that, that runs an IIS. Oh, it's a, no, it's a it's real? <laughs> I was hoping that was a joke. <laughs> no, no. Um, so that that's something that uh, like the client knows that that is costing them a fair bit more money to have to do because they know that <laughs> we have to test everything in custom setups. And I think this one was also running PHP 5.2. Um, so... Um, I think the the best thing you can really get is for the client to understand that it is their limitation that they're literally enforcing, and that's like hurting everything. But they're the ones that are that are taking the trade off for that. Um, they know that they have to pay more money, or the project is going to take long to build because they've got this hard thing where their IT department say they have to use IS, and there's nothing else they can do. Not uh, not not to necessarily is not you know. Not not to uh, rag on IAS um, because there is plenty of configurations you can use, you know, that, that are good with that. But there are certain ones that aren't going to work so well. And and if you can't change that, then it just needs to be, I think, the client that is the one that is assuming that trade off um, and having to, you know, uh, really they have to be the one that is taking the cost, uh, not you. So, I mean, it's a pain for me to have to work with PHP five two, um, but. I know that we're compensated for that by the fact that we're given longer time to implement things because it takes a different, uh, you know, more testing and, and different ways to code things, for example, than, than without it. And I think it's, I, th- I think like once you realize you can shift that um, burden, I guess, back to the client because it's ultimately their, um, their restriction, uh, then it's a lot more liberating. It doesn't feel like you're having to deal with so much um, kind of, garbage really uh when you're not the one that's having to uh really be penalized for that hmm, hmm. It's, it's difficult <laughs> i mean <laughs> it, it it is yeah uh i've always found this one of the more challenging things all the way from the simple side of hey let's choose a plugin to the complicated side of of you know embedded libraries within a project um uh, any do you have any closing thoughts in terms of the general mindset maybe someone should should try to have when they're when they're choosing anything to go within their in their website? I would say like f- obviously it just depend on what kind of size you're doing. If you're churning out a site a week for a thousand bucks, then um you just pragmatically like you you can't uh go to the same level maybe that I'm advocating in terms of vetting all of the code and things like that. So I acknowledge that that it depends on your circumstance, but I would just be um, very wary about how much you understand about the code base that you're running in terms of what you know all of that code is doing and kind of where are, you know, the areas that could be tricky. You know, if, if I have something where I've implemented um, something that can execute PHP from some content somebody puts in. And I know that I know that it's there uh, and it's probably a terrible idea, um, but, <laughs> but at least knowing about it really can uh, allow you to um, reason a lot more. So when your site does get hacked, because that was a silly idea to do that, at least I kind of like probably understand where that came from and I can look to see if that actually was the place. Just like the more you know, the better. So if you kind of like think about the code base for your site and you're a developer, but you just feel like 99% of it is this big void that you know nothing about, 
then um, I'd probably advocate just for, uh, you know, be- being able to reason a lot more and understand what all of that code is doing. Yeah, and I think all, all I would add to that is, especially on the, on the lower end of the scale, you kind of start all of these discussions saying, I want X functionality. And then you make various sacrifices as you go through the process of, you know, trying to, to meet your needs. Um, I would, as you go through this process, continually try to remember the first question, which was, why do I need this functionality? And if you're giving up too much as you go along the journey of uh, achieving the functionality, um, maybe consider whether it's still worth achieving the functionality that you're looking for. Um, because you could end up causing yourself a lot of headaches getting what you initially asked for, but you might get so much more in addition to that in terms of troubles that it's not actually worth the, the you know what you were after in the first place. Mm. It's a bit like so. trying to uh, design hexagons in CSS. Let's <laughs> <laughs> uh, change the design. You've done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good example. Do you need that hexagon? Because you just included uh, seven thousand lines of code, <laughs> JavaScript, and CSS in order to get hexagons. Now you have a hexagon framework. Right. Yeah. Yep. So, I guess that's uh, pretty much it today. We just kind of wanted to talk about how we choose stuff. Um, I don't think either of us have have nailed it, but we've got several years of experience of of dealing with it. Uh, Several more years to go. Several more years to go. If anybody's got good advice they want to give us on this in this regard, please uh, leave a comment on the on the post. And uh, yeah, Joe, where can where can people catch you? Uh, they can get me on Twitter. Um, still woefully under tweeting at Joe underscore Hoyle. And you can find me on Twitter where I'm still woefully over tweeting <laughs> at Krogsguard. <laughs> for me. Or you can go to uh, postass.com slash club and join and get some newsletters in your inbox and join our little Slack community. And we'll see everybody next time. Cheers. <laughs>